Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter. Pretty good Bible studies I'm going to cover in this audio, 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 24. It will be entitled simply, Love One Another. Our context is this in the first 10 verses of 1 John 3. In our last audio, John discussed how children of God keep from sinning. So we take up now in verses 11 and 12 in 1 John 3, for this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another, unlike Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Now, from the beginning, they've heard this. The beginning of what? Well, the first time the gospel was preached to them, that could be the beginning, or the first time they were first converted. Well, it doesn't really matter. It just means for a long time. Through their whole Christian experience, they've heard this. We should love one another. It was drilled into their heads. We should love one another. I again ask you, how often do you hear in today's sermons about loving one another? Probably not as much as those early Christians did. Unlike Cain, who was the evil one and murdered his brother, Cain did not love his brother. He did not love one another. Now, why did he murder? Well, you know the story, of course. Cain offered grain sacrifices to God, and Abel offered blood animal sacrifices to God. Some commentators say that that's why Cain's offering were Offerings were not accepted because they were not bloody sacrifices, because they were supposed to be typical of the bloody sacrifice of the Mosaic Law and later of Jesus' bloody sacrifice. And Abel's was, but some people say that no, Cain just had a lousy attitude, a rebellious attitude against God, and a hateful attitude toward Abel. And that's why God was upset with him. His works were evil, not the fact that he offered a grain sacrifice without blood, but just because he was an evil person. And Abel was a righteous person. But whatever it is, the point is, is that there you have the first instance of fratricide. It's a pretty good example, Old Testament example. Talk about fratricide. That's bad business. Hating your brother. Now, John mentions works. He says, why did Cain murder Abel? Because his works, Cain's works, were evil. Remember, John is trying to emphasize how to tell an immoral heretic from a true brother. And you look around, you look at his works. By your fruits you shall know them. We go to verse 13, 1 John 3. Do not be surprised, brother, brothers, if the world hates you. Jameson Fawcett and Brown comments, quote, The world feels its bad works tacitly reproved by your good works. Now that's the truth. You know, you start being righteous and people are going to look at you. You mean you don't get drunk? What's the matter with you? Come on, let's try this drug. It'll, it'll do you good. I remember... My childhood baseball hero grew up a mile from me. I, well, I grew up a mile from his house. Bobby Richardson, MVP of the 1960 World Series for the New York Yankees. I remember a story, I think it was in one of his testimony books. Hank Bauer saw him and realized that Bobby Richardson didn't drink beer. And so Hank Bauer, this was pre-1960 before I started listening to the Yankees, but Hank Bauer comes into the clubhouse and says, Come on, Bobby. Come on, Robert. Drink some beer. It'll put hair on your chest. See, because non-believers just can't stand the fact that Christians aren't getting drunk with them. They want people to carouse with them in the darkness. Adam Clark says the reason that John tells his readers, don't be surprised, brothers, if the world hates you. John is trying to prepare them for martyrdom, Clark says, because he knew that things were bad right there before. If he's writing before AD 70, that was when there was horrible persecution from the Jews, the non-believing Jews. Adam Clark also said, expect neither justice nor mercy from the enemies of God. And that's the truth. Don't expect justice and don't expect mercy because you're not going to get it. They hate you because you're a Christian. 1 John 3, 14 through 15. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. 
The one who does not love remains in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. That word know is mentioned twice in these two verses. Again, John is trying to show his readers how to distinguish believers from non-believing heretics. How can you know who's in the light, and how can you know who's in the darkness? Well, the way you know is, is this person loving his brother, or is he mooching off of him and getting money from him? Or is he ignoring him or not caring about him and not praying about him? And John takes a step from hate to murder. He says, you hate your brother, you're a murderer. Well, isn't that a little extreme? Well, that's exactly what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 21 and 22. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And whoever says to his brother, fool, will be subject to the Sanhedrin. But whoever says, you moron, will be subject to hellfire. Jesus says, these words in the original languages are, are going from dimwit to jackass to you absolute pathetic moron. You know, they're stronger as you get going, so Jesus, so the punishment gets worse. You go from Sanhedrin to hellfire. But the point is, is you hate your brother. And you notice how Jesus connects being angry and murder. You get angry, you're subject to judgment. You murder, you're subject to judgment. Because there's not a lot of difference, is there? One is just an extension of the other. Murder is an extension of being angry. We go to verse 16, 1 John 3. This is how we have come to know love. Well, first of all, let me back up a minute. In verses 14 and 15, John mentions that word know. It comes from gnosis, the Greek word from which Gnostics got their name. They said they had esoteric knowledge. They had knowledge of how to get from one angelic hierarchy to the next. If you knew secret shibboleths, secret uh, passwords, secret incantations, you can work your way on up the hierarchy. And if you want that knowledge, you've got to come to us false heretics. Come to us Gnostics. And John is saying you don't need to do that because we know that we have passed a life. And how do we know? Not because we have some secret password, but we look around and we love our brothers. People that we would not have anything to do with normally before we were Christians. They're not our, they don't have our same interest. They don't have our same personality. They don't have our same culture. Whatever. They're different ages. They're different genders. They have different stages in life. But you still love them. And because you love them, that's how you know that Jesus is in you because Jesus is causing you to love him. Now, 1 John 3.16, this is how we have come to know love. There's the word know, love, uh, know again. How have you come to know love? He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers. Now, you've heard it said many times, and I've said it many times, love is not feeling, merely feeling. It's action is mainly action. It's what you do for somebody. Well, this is the perfect example of that. How did Jesus show his love for us? He laid down his life for us. He did something. He died on the cross for us. He did something very painful for him and very self-sacrificial for him. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers. And that means, of course, do whatever is necessary to help your brother out, even to the extent of dying for your brother, I would say, because lay down your lives, that's what it, physically, that's what it means. Now, of course, the extreme example is Jesus, and a lot of times we get extreme examples so that we can handle less extreme examples in our lives. But if it ever came to that, I suspect that we would need to lay down our lives for our brothers. be tough to do, but it has to be done. John also wrote in John 15:13, the same John, he said, No one has greater love than this, that someone will lay down his life for his friends. That's pretty big love there. Jesus laid down his life for his friends. We are now his friends. Jesus died, and we died. Jesus died for his brethren. We should die for our brethren. We should imitate Jesus. Paul imitates Jesus, and we imitate Paul. 
Paul died for his brethren too in Rome when he was executed. 1 John 3.17, If anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need but closes his eyes through his need, how can God's love reside in him? You see somebody in need and say, I love you, brother, but you don't help him? That ain't love because love is doing something. How can God's love reside in such a person? Now, what does God's love mean? Does it mean God's love for others? Does that God's love for other people reside in that person? It could be because obviously the answer is no, it does not. Could it be the believer's love for God? How can God's love, i.e., the believer's love for God reside in him. Well, that could be that way too. I'm not sure which way admitted. That's one of those genitives. It's hard to know which way it goes. Who's doing the love and who receives the object of that love? Is it God loving us or is, is it um, the believer's love for God going the other way? doesn't matter. Either way, if you don't have that in you, you're going to look at somebody in need and say, oh, I don't see any need there. I'm not going to help him out. This, of course, is very similar to what James said in James 2, verses 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can his faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm, and eat well, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, if it doesn't have works, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. I remember applying that verse in a little bit different way. People are hungry for knowledge about the gospel, and you go to this preacher, you know, and he doesn't know the answer. I'm thinking of a particular preacher. He was head of a church, and he, he just didn't know the answer to a lot of things. And So one of the, either a visitor or maybe a member of the church, I don't remember, came up to him and asked him the question, and he just says, got to lead you, brother. Got to lead you, brother. He did that about two, three or four times, and I finally told my friend who was relaying this to me. I said, well, why didn't he just say, go in peace, be warm, and be filled? Because that's what he's doing. God will lead you, brother. It's up to a teacher to try to figure it out and help the person. Don't just say, God will lead you, brother. Do something for other people. Serve your brothers. That's Christianity. First John chapter 3, verse 18. Little children, we must not love with word or speech, with, with, but with truth and action. There we go. Love is action. It's not just words. It's action. I used to tell this to Chinese. I always, I had, I, I was a college professor in China, and these young, young people, mainly young women, were falling in love all the time, and they would say, "Oh, I love him, I love him." I said, "Why are you getting married? You want to marry him?" I don't know. Maybe so. Would you love him now? Yeah, I love him. I said, "Well, what are you going to do for him?" Thought never crossed their mind. Never crossed their mind. All they could think about is, "I've got a boyfriend now, and he takes me out and pays for my." meals and buys me flowers and candies on valentine day but does the thought ever cross these young ladies minds about how they can help their their the per, the object of their love no not until they get married will they understand what love is you got to do something for somebody same thing for the husbands now jameson fawcett brown quotes jerome the translator of the latin vulgate who ended up in the fifth century i think it was fifth century living in palestine and this is what jameson fawcett brown uh says Quoting Jerome, when the venerable John could no longer walk to the meetings of the church, but was borne thither by his disciples, he always uttered the same address to the church. He reminded them of that, that one commandment which he had received from Christ himself, is comprising all the rest, and forming the distinction of the new covenant. My little children love one another. This is in John 13, verse 34. I'm sure that Jerome is quoting. When the brethren present, wearied of hearing the same thing so often, Asked why he always repeated the same thing, he replied, Because it is the commandment of the Lord, and if this one thing be attained, it is enough. Moving now to 1 John chapter 3, verses 19-22. through 22. 
This is how we will know we belong to the truth and will convince our conscience in his presence. Even if our conscience condemns us that God is greater than our conscience and he knows all things. Now those two verses are a little bit obscure. I'll explain them in a minute. Verse 21, dear friends, if our conscience doesn't condemn us, we have confidence before God and can receive whatever we ask from him because we keep his commands and do what is pleasing in his sight. Now we have a lot about conscience in here. We also have that word know. This is how we will know this what? By loving the saints in deed and in truth, not just in words, which we just talked about in the previous verse. Loving saints in action is how we will know. If you find yourself wanting to do something for your brother, that's how you know Jesus is in you, that his Holy Spirit is in you, because that ain't natural, folks. We're selfish human beings by nature, by our birth nature. This is how we will know we belong to the truth and will convince our conscience. Again, he uses that word no because he's contrasting true knowledge love of the brethren, with the fake knowledge of the Gnostic heretics. This true knowledge, loving of the brothers, will convince our conscience. What does that mean? Well, here's some other translations. Montgomery, come to know that we are really of the truth. Mace New Testament, this will set our consciences securely at rest. King James Version, this will assure our hearts. The New American Bible, this is how we'll know that we belong to the truth. The New American Standard Bible, this is how we know that we are of the truth. Of the truth. The Wesley translation, this is how we know that we are of the truth. The Weymouth translation, this is how we know that we are loyal to the truth and shall satisfy our consciousnesses. Young's Little translation, this is how we know that of the truth we are, and therefore him we, and, and before him we shall assure our hearts. So basically this is saying we'll, we'll, we'll know that we're believers. Our hearts are, am I really a Christian? I don't feel like a Christian. I don't love, I don't love people. No, ah, but you love him. You did something for your brother. You loved him in action and deed. Well, that's how you know you're a believer. So you have doubts, do something for your brother. In our previous audio, we saw that John said, if you want your prayers answered, you better love your brother. Well, here's another thing you can do. Another thing that will help you if you love your brother, you'll get rid of your doubts your intellectual doubts, your emotional doubts, your psychological doubts about your relationship with Jesus. Show some action, show some love in action to your brothers, and you're not going to doubt anymore. Verse 20 says, even if our conscience condemns us. Now, that's not referring to every conscience, because some people's consciences are seared, and thus they do not get condemned by their conscience, but they don't get whatever they ask from God. Actually, I said that was before, actually. That's in this verse right here. It says... In verse 21, if our conscience doesn't condemn us, that means because we're loving our brothers and therefore our conscience is not condemning us, we have confidence and can receive whatever we ask from him. Why? Because we keep his commands. So you keep his commands, you love your brother in action, your prayers get answered. Now, but why does he say in verse 20, even if our conscience condemns us, God is greater than our conscience? Well, here's option number one. We are guilty of not loving our brother, and so our conscience tells us, Oh, my conscience is condemning me. I don't love my brother. Ah, but God is greater than our conscience. He sees even more than we do the lack of love for the brethren that our conscience sees. As John Gill puts it, quote, As he knows more perfectly, he judges more exactly and will reprove more sharply and condemn more severely for them. Hence, if the condemnation of men's hearts and consciousness be so very great, and sometimes to be intolerable and insupportable, what will be the righteous judgment and dreadful condemnation of God? So Gill says this is an a fortiori argument, basically. He's saying, John is saying, 
Look, even if our conscience condemns us, even if so, God is even God will condemn us even He'll condemn our conscience even worse than that if you don't love your brother. Because he knows all things. He knows what you hadn't done for your brother. So don't get yourself in that situation and go to verse twenty one. Get yourself in a situation where your conscience doesn't condemn you so you can receive whatever you ask from him. Well that's reasonable, but here's option number two. We are not guilty of a lack of love towards our brother. Nevertheless, we have a guilty conscience. In other words, a false conscience. So we would read it like this. Even if our conscience wrongly condemns us, God is greater than our conscience. He'll forgive us even, even if we have trouble forgiving ourselves. Now, I tend to think that's the right view here. John Gill and Adam Clark mention it. Martin Luther affirms that's what it means. And the famous Protestant commentator Bingle also affirms that. He says, look, you got a, a guilty conscience that shouldn't be guilty because people love to condemn themselves. God's bigger than that. He knows all things. He knows that he's forgiven you and he knows that you're loving your brother. So get over it. Don't let, you, if you're con don't let your conscience condemn you. And when God shows you that your conscience shouldn't condemn you, then you will know that you can receive whatever you ask from him. And you will know why, because you're keeping his commands and you're doing what's pleasing in his sight. So with that option, God is greater than our conscience because he can take away the false guilt. Well, however you read that, the object of John here is to get rid of that guilty conscience, to get his readers into the situation where his conscience doesn't condemn. In other words, if they're not loving their brother in action and deed, well, they need to start doing it because their conscience is justly condemning them. Or if they are loving their brother in action and deed, but their conscience is still bothering them in, a, in an unjustified way, a false way, well, then you need to get rid of that too. God's bigger than both of those situations. He wants you to have confidence before God, confidence that you're a Christian, that God accepts you, that you can walk into the throne room of God with no fear. I got a friend who says you can sit up on his lap too. And we can receive whatever we ask from him because we keep his commands and do what is pleasing in his sight. Now, we can ask whatever we receive from him. Matthew 7, 7 says this. This is the Young's literal translation. Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. Sounds like King James, too. Ask, seek, and knock, and you'll get it. Assuming, of course, it's in the will of God. 1 John 5.14, now this is the confidence we have before him. Whenever we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. The condition there, according to his will, is explicitly stated in 1 John 5.14. It's implied in all other places where the verses say, ask and you'll receive. Of course it has to be in his will. You don't want to ask for a Lamborghini if the Lamborghini is going to ruin you because of the lust for money or whatever. I remember I asked for a particular girl to marry for four years. And all my friends saw it. God knew it. I was the last to know that if I married her, my life would have been over, disastrously destroyed. That old country song Garth Brooks says, thank God for unanswered prayers. Sometimes they need to be unanswered. But on the other hand, if you're praying in the will of God, he's more than happy to answer. And notice how in verse 22, John uses that word keep. If because we keep his commands, that doesn't mean we keep them perfectly. Nobody can do that. But we generally keep them so note how our receiving what we ask is contingent upon our keeping his commandments. And, of course, the particular commandment is loving our brother. You love your brother, God will say, okay, what do you want? I'm going to give it to you. But if you don't want to love your brother, mm -mm, not going to give it to you. God is not a genie who pops out of a lamp to do our bidding. You think about that. Aladdin rubs the lamp. Out comes the little green genie. Does the genie say, Aladdin, you must obey me, and I'll answer you no. The genie says, Master, your wish is my command. <laughs> It says nothing about obedience, but God's not a genie. Jesus is not a genie. He wants obedience. Now notice in verse 22, 
that we can receive what we ask from him because we keep his commands. Well, what are Jesus' commands? Well, let's look at Matthew, excuse me, 1 John 3, 18, same, uh, same, same section of Scripture we're, we're working on now, which says, Little children, we must not love with word or speech, but with truth and action. There's a command. Love with word and action. Not with word, but with action. That's a command of Jesus. How about John 13, 34 through 35? Jesus says, I give you a new command. Love one another. Well, that fits right in with this chapter, does it not? That's what I call this section of Scripture. Love one another. And it's a new command. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. It's the law of Christ. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So that's how you keep his commands, by loving one another. And th thus, you will do what is pleasing in his sight. We go now to verse verses 23 and 24. We'll finish up 1 John chapter 3. Now, this is his command that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he commanded us. I just read you the verse from John, same author. John 13, 34, and 35, where he said, uh, love one another. That was a command. And he also has another aspect to this command of Jesus, that we believe in the name of his Son. This is God's command. That we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. The one who keeps his commands remains in him, and that his there is, well, it's either God or Christ. I'm not sure which it is. doesn't make any difference, really. The one who keeps his commands Remains in him, remains in Christ. That remains is translated in the King James as abides. I like that kind of a he abides in him. He stays in him. So you want to not stray from Jesus? You want to keep your love for Jesus strong? Obey what he says. Do what he says. He's always asking you to do something that you haven't done before. I, I know one really young, spiritual, on-fire Christian having trouble forgiving a couple people for good reason. She's already forgiven and asked forgiveness for a, a lot of people. It took a lot of guts, but they're still... It's her father, you know. Ooh, that's a hard one. Ooh, ooh, that's a hard one. Forgiving for what kind of a daughter she was. And so she needs to keep Jesus' command. She knows what the command is. She knows she's got to do it. So I just tell her, well, you know you need to do this. Just go ahead and do it. And that way she'll remain in Jesus. And he and him. All right, again, in is in union with. His commands remain in union with him. And Jesus in union with the believer, the one who keeps the commands. And the way we know, there's that word know again, not by secret Gnostic words and passwords and angelic hierarchies. And the way we know, the way we know Jesus is that he remains, the way we know that we're in Jesus, in union with Jesus, is that he remains in us from the spirit he has given us. You're in union with Jesus. You're, the Holy Spirit will testify in your heart that Jesus is real. So when you see a Christian movie, you'll say, ah, oh, that happened. When you see Jesus turning water into wine on the chosen, you say, that happened. I wish I was there to see it. Thank, praise Jesus for doing such a wonderful miracle. Now this is his command. The command is just another word for law. So this is the law of Christ. This is Jesus' command. Let me read you the two scriptures in the New Testament which speak of the law of Christ. 1 Corinthians 9.21 To those who are without that law like one without the law. This is Paul saying he is like those who are without Mosaic law. I'm like one without the Mosaic law. However, not being without God's law, but within Christ's law. So he makes a contrast between Moses' law and Christ's law. He's not antinomian. He's just switching laws to win, so he can win those without the law. In Galatians 6, 2, carry one another's burdens, and this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Again, notice, it's not loving in deed. Excuse me, it's not loving in word or in thought or intentions. It's loving in deed. Carry one another's burdens. That's how you fulfill the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? What's the command he left? That you love one another, John 13, 34, and 35. 
So the law of Christ is to believe in Jesus and to love one another. Simple, folks. That makes it easy to witness. Just give them the, the basic gospel. Repent, believe, and love your brother and love Jesus and love God the Father. Turn away from your sins. Now, command, not only as another word for law, it can also stand for doctrine. 1 John 2, 7, Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old command that you have heard from the beginning. The old command is the message you have heard. Well, that's a minor distinction. Doctrine and command, same thing to me. Notice this word know again in verse 24. In this way we know that he remains in us from the Holy Spirit, not from your esoteric, highfalutin, hair-splitting religious knowledge, theosophy, angelic hierarchies, philosophy that nobody can understand. Now notice this test, how do you know that you're with Jesus, is from the Spirit. That's actually a subjective test. Subjective tests are perfectly all right. We know because we know because we know. We know in our heart. Now, when I went to seminary, my evangelical seminary, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, was gung-ho on fighting the typical neo-orthodox. It was just, just Jesus. It's just Jesus revealed in us and not the Scripture. Jesus reveals himself directly without going through the Scripture. And they were fighting pietism like the pietism in the South. And just what I call no-brain Christianity. It's just Jesus. It's just Jesus. And nothing else. No scripture. No commands. Well, that, of course, attitude is everywhere in Christianity, and it's bad. It's wrong. But, and so the teachers at my seminary were constantly emphasizing the objective knowledge. Well, I remember one day one well-known professor was doing that, and this Assembly of God preacher. Now, Assembly of God, of course, Pentecostal denomination, they're sort of, you know, they, they're noted for a little bit of emotional stuff. I, he started quoting verses to this to this professor and i don't remember i don't remember what they were but they were to the effect as effect of we know that he remains in us from his spirit that's subjective folks so it's a, it's a distortion of the truth in an extreme to say we only have objective knowledge just as is in an extreme to say it's only what we have in our heart the subjective testimony that Christians give of how they got saved is a powerful testimony, but man, you need to give objective reasons too because Buddhists can go around saying what's in their heart. Oh man, I saw the light, made me feel so good. New Age people do that all the time. You got to have both subjective and objective witnesses, and then we'll know that we're in Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, I'll finish 1 John chapter 3. In our next audio, we'll start with chapter 4. We'll do verses 1 through 6, a short one, in which... John exhorts his readers to test the spirits. I hope you stay tuned for that one. Hope you enjoyed this one.